Good morning, everyone. How's everybody? How was your week? Is it all right? I was glad for the warm temperatures. Still frost on the windows in the morning, though. So um, we're continuing our, our, our 40 Days with Jesus series, and uh, we're going to loosely be in, uh, in that verse in, in Matthew chapter 8. But um, let's pray real quick. Like. Father, thank you. Thank you for another week. Thank you for another day. Thank you for getting together. Thank you for seeing faces and drinking coffee and the murmur of voices. Father, thank you for your word. You've got it open in front of us. We're going to dive into your scriptures, Father. We're asking that you draw near, that you be with us, that you open your wisdom and your guidance and your strength to us, that we would know the things that you need for us to know as we go into this next week. We offer this time up to you, Father. Please be with us. Amen. Some uh, announcements. Uh, our next food bank is March 12th and 13th. Yeah, bulletins. You could like, it's awesome. <laughs> I was, yeah, I know. It's, it, 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 it's been almost exactly a year. Um, I know. Uh, so anyway, we'll hopefully move that direction, start to get back to, uh, to normal. Um, Bible speaking of back to normal, so we uh, do have the, the Tuesday evening Bible studies going on here at the church. Yes, Ms. Ron? But not at six. I, see, I was wondering about. So I had it at six. Of course, I, I. So I do the bulletins. I basically copy and pasted the announcements from last year, and I was writing that out, and I was going, I'm pretty sure that's six thirty. But see, I, I have a tradition, and I'm not going to break it. I always have to get one announcement at least wrong, if not multiple. So, if you want to just take your pen and write in there six thirty instead of six o'clock. <laughs> Sorry, right? but yeah. So the men's and women's studies here at the church Tuesday nights at um, at six thirty. Um, we are in the, the 40 Days with, with Jesus series. Um, today is our, our session on, on Simon Peter. Um, and then uh, coming up on March 14th, um, we have Ray um, that's going to come. Um, is going to have a mission Sunday, and he's going to talk about missions in, uh, in Thailand and Myanmar. And um, I say our, our whole goal with that is to um, really get us more of a, a missions focus and to hopefully kick that off a little bit, um, get us moving in in that direction. Um, Pastor Nathan will be speaking on, on the 21st. Um, then we have uh, Easter coming up on, on April 4th. So that week, so we'll have Palm Sunday, and then Friday we're going to do a worship service on Friday night for Good Friday. And then we'll have the sunrise service out at the Berry House at, um, on Sunday morning. I know! And then, uh, and then we'll have Easter service here on, on Easter the 4th. Um, April 11th, um, the Gideons will be here um, to, to speak to us. They just dropped off a, a load of Bibles to us on Saturday, I know, um, for us to be able to, to give for the next food bank. Um, Steve, uh, you'll get to meet him on, uh, on, the, four, on the, uh, the 11th, but um, he you know, was so worried that we had those for, uh, for the next food bank that he wanted to make sure he got them to us quickly. So it was awesome. He came here yesterday. We had the, the scouts here yesterday for the Pinewood Derby. Uh, it was pretty fun having the track. I mean, it was just, it took up this whole, <laughs> this whole thing, but it was fun. Yeah. So the, the kiddos were out here racing their cars and um, it was great. Um, then uh, Secret Church coming up on April 23rd. That's, uh, that's a Friday. I'm guessing it'll be at five o'clock again. They usually started at seven o'clock Eastern time. 
Um, so I guess it'll be, it should be um, five o'clock our time. Um, and then lastly, um, remember we do have the Bibles at the back of the church. Um, if you need a Bible, take a Bible. If you know someone who needs a Bible, take a Bible. Um, remember the, the library also in the um, little anteroom there in between the, the two units. Um, the the uh, 20th annual joke contest is well underway. Um, we're taking submissions for that. And again, I, I promise that I will give you credit for all of the bad and mediocre jokes that you submit. I promise I will. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Speaking of that, I have the joke for this morning. Are you ready? So uh, <clears throat> what do a dead saint, a dead atheist, and a dead agnostic all have in common? They all know there is a God. <laughs> there it is. All right. So we're in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. And it says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Mm. So our message today, we're looking under the hood. The, the whole point of this message is kind of a, a dive into... Um, the apostles and specifically Peter. But our goal for it is to come away with a deeper or maybe a renewed appreciation, first for the apostles and specifically for Peter, but also over all of this, we lay this, this idea and this theme that God uses regular, ordinary people to change the world. And I hope that that's encouraging. This is really one of the most encouraging things that we can talk about is how God uses just normal folks, everyday people, to radically change the world. So we're going to start off with a, with a history. We're going to talk, start off with a summary of the calling of the disciples. And again, think about it. They are, they are really common people, common men who are called to the extraordinary. We're going to look at who they are through Scripture. And our goal is to learn some truths we're going to learn how to truly and honestly measure greatness. It's one of the things in our society that we have this idea of what makes a great person, what makes for a great life, what makes for great achievement. And the Bible really turns that idea on its side, turns it on its end. God has a very different definition of what greatness is. But we should not be fooled. When we read about common people and, and doing these extraordinary things, we are tempted to think that God has low standards. God does not have low standards. God sets very high standards for his people, for his believers. And it sets up a conflict for us. How does he get from this person who comes from nothing, from nowhere, to the person that he wants them to be, to that person that meets those high standards? How does he get those things together? How does God take a common, sinful, fallen person and take them from where they are to the place where they meet his high standards. If we were to do a quick review, we were to look at the qualifications. If we were taking in resumes for this, this job of changing the world, of making the world a better place, we could start at the Old Testament, at the very beginning of Genesis, and just kind of pick it apart and go, wow. As you look at Adam and Eve, they, they both ate from the apple. So what was so great about them? Think about Noah. He built the ark. He was chosen to rebuild humanity, but then 
he lost himself in drinking. Think about Abraham. He had faith, and God chose him to be the father of, to the believers, not just to the believers of the Israelites, but to the father of many nations, including the nation of Israel, and then the nation of Jesus. But Abraham also, he disobeyed God. Remember, he waited until after his father had died to follow and do as God had asked him to do. He doubted God. He lied about his wife. He committed adultery with her handmaid. And through his adultery, we still have conflict in the Middle East. Isaac told the same lie about his wife that his father did. Jacob took advantage of his brother and his father and claimed a birthright and a blessing that was not his. Moses was a murderer. Moses was also angry and proud. He killed an Egyptian in anger. He smashed the tablets in anger. And in pride and in anger, he struck a rock to get water for the people instead of doing what God asked him to do. Aaron was the first high priest. He also led the people of Israel in creating the golden calf. Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. He also doubted God and disobeyed God by making a treaty with the Gibeonites instead of destroying them like he was told to. Think about Gideon. Gideon was both brash and timid. We look at him and go, wow, what a great leader, what a great warrior, but he was pretty scared. He demanded sign after sign after sign before he would move, before he had the courage to do what God asked him to do. Samson, probably the greatest warrior in the Old Testament, was trapped in lust. David, a, a man after God's own heart, author of song and song, he uh, committed murder. He was trapped in lust and adultery. Jonah, a prophet for God, he ran away from his calling. What about Daniel? What about any of the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah? The point about that is to look at them and realize that they were people just like us, fallen, sinful. They were just like us, just a mess. So the question is, what made them great? What made them fantastic? Why are their names written in the hallowed halls of Scripture? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. They were not great on their own. And this is the encouragement. Keep this in mind. What makes a person great is not their position, not their power, not their riches, not their achievements, or their education. Even their humility and their service does not make them great. We talked about John the Baptist last week. Jesus called John the greatest man who ever lived. So what made him great? Each of those people were conduits. They were pathways. They were partners with God. It is God's power and work through his partnership with these people. That is what true greatness is. It is how God is glorified. It is how God is proclaimed and is seen through the lives of these people. Each of those people in the Bible, other than Jesus, is a fallen, sinful person, just like us. Their greatness is measured in the proximity, the power, and the glory of God that was poured out in partnership with them. The Bible calls John the Baptist the greatest man to have lived. But again, what was it that made him great? Was it the camel hair clothing? I guess i got to change my wardrobe. Was his rejection of material things? Was his diet of bugs and honey? Or was it his proximity to the Messiah? Was it his message? Was it the power of God that poured out of him onto the people that then turned their hearts back to God and they, he made the way for Jesus? 
I would say it was that, that it was him working with God to deliver that message. He was fueled by the power of God, and it paved the way. It opened the door for Jesus. But it still opens the question, what is God looking for in a conduit, in a partner? What does the Lord look for in a resume? These qualifications, are, they're listed of what it means to be a Christian, to be an elder, to be a pastor, to be an apostle. We're looking specifically at Simon Peter. What did he possess that made him the best leader? The Petros, the, the Cephas, the rock on which Christ built the church. But this is the truth. The truth is that God uses the unqualified, the weak, the poor, the hapless, the most common people. But quite frankly, that's because that's what he has. All of us meet those standards. In our weakness, though, God is glorified. In our weakness, when great things happen, the only possible answer is God. There is no chance that we will be credited. God will receive the praise and the worship, which is the correct thing. So if we were to turn in our New Testament to look at some examples of what the qualifications were, I would think if you got a stack of applications, you know, you open the positions, well, we're looking for 12 apostles, 12 guys that are going to go out with Jesus. If you're taking in the resumes, if you're the HR person, what are you looking for? What do you want to see on those resumes? What do you want to see at the top of those things? And here's the thing, is that it's tempting when we do this exercise, as we go through the list of the apostles of the disciples, as we get towards the bottom of the list, it's tempting to think less of the guys that we know less about the guys who maybe didn't write more or who we don't know more about. But the thing is that each one of them was called to be part of the 12. Each one of them has a special place in heaven next to Jesus, and each one of them has their names written forever in Scripture. We cannot diminish that at all. So there are four lists of the apostles in the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. It's Matthew chapter 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1. In these lists, the names are always the same, so we know exactly who these 12 men were. But the names are not in identical order in the lists, except for there are some exceptions to that rule that I just laid down for you. The first name in all, of the, all four lists is Peter. Then the 12 are divided into three groups of four. The first group is Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In every list, they are the first four. James and John's names, they get mixed around in the list, but Peter is always first, and they're always in group one. Group two is always the same. Philip, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel. Um, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. The names of Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas sometimes get mixed up, but Philip is always the first name of group two. Then the last group, is James the Lesser, James the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Younger, then Simon, Simon the Zealot, and then Judas, son of Alphaeus, and Judas Iscariot. The two middle names uh, of Simon and, uh, and Judas or Jude, they get switched around. But James is always the first name, and Judas Iscariot, Judas the betrayer, Judas the traitor, is always the last. So, when we divide them up into fours like this, with Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and then Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, and then James and Simon and Judas and Judas, we learn some things. We learn, first of all, that these groups, well, first of all, that they were kind of divided into groups. It gives us an interesting lesson in, in human management, in managing teams. 
that even here, Jesus set limits on, on how he managed people. He broke people up into subgroups. That's one of the amazing things about the Bible. You know, the whole purpose of the Bible is Christ. That's the whole purpose of it. But in there, we can learn lessons about how to operate in the world. Um, one, of the, one of the great things about this is we can learn to see Jesus is saying, hey, when you have a large group, when you're managing people, break them up into smaller groups. Set a leader over these groups of four and then build your team that way. So the overall leader, the first name that's always listed is Peter. Then you have Philip, who's the leader of um, group two, and then James, who is the leader of group three. They're also um, put in order of closeness to Christ, of intimacy to Christ. Those groups are in decreasing intimacy. Group one is always around Christ. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They're the most intimate group. They were the first disciples that Jesus called back in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. They were the first group that he called to be disciples. And here he identifies them as the apostles. They've been with him the longest, and they are the closest to Christ. Now, Peter, James, and John get set apart even from Andrew. John calls himself the apostle Christ loved. And on the cross, Jesus asked John to watch after his mom. And John is the one who is given the Revelation, the book of Revelation at the end times. Peter, James, and John are also present for the transfiguration. They are also the second witnesses to the resurrection. It's important to note that Mary and the other ladies were the first to witness the risen Christ. Group two is a little bit more distant, but we do know quite a bit about Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas. Um, And then, of course, Matthew, who wrote our Gospel of Matthew. Group three... They seemed like they were kind of at a distance, although I don't know how you can be distant in a group of 12 people, but we don't know much about them at all. And the only thing we know about Judas, uh, we know about Judas because he's the one who betrayed Jesus. He's the the one that we know most about of that group. So out of those, he really kept three people really close with him, and sometimes four. But if you were to reinforce our point about them all being important, all of them being apostles, if you go to Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says, they were appointed that they would be with him. Say they were all there, all 12, even though those degrees of intimacy and that kind of order existed within their group. So again, just to repeat, Peter's the overall leader of the apostles and the leader of group one, and then Philip and then James. And remember the reason why we're examining these lists, these men, their qualifications. Again, we're reinforcing that idea that Lord does use the weak, and he uses the common for this uncommon duty. And he does that, that we need to learn this lesson, that the the lessons of the world, things about people being wise and wealthy, lessons about people being successful in worldly terms, that that's not really what he is looking for. When we are less, he is more. Another thing to notice is that they were a pretty diverse group. There's lots of different backgrounds, lots of different ideologies that makes up this group, to make up the team that he chose. They were all Jewish, but they varied in their trade and in their education and in their traits that they brought to the table. We're going to go through them kind of in a, in a list one by one. And I say at the minimum, just get a little bit more familiar with these guys. And at the very end, we'll zoom in specifically in on Peter. Peter is, they call him Simon Bar-Jonas. That just means the son of Jonas. And that the wording there, you can transliterate that, that his dad's name was either Jonas or, or Jonah or John. 
Um, it could be any one of those based on, on the language. But that, that was his dad. So we just know that Andrew and, and Peter's dad was either Jonas or Jonah or John. And then we have James and John, Zebedee. They were all fishermen. It seems they all came from the same town, Bethsaida, and it seems that they all kind of worked together. If we uh, read the, um, the calling when they cast the nets out and then they bring in them full, it seems like that was James and John in the second boat that helped, helped bring in the catch, that they worked together. They called them the business partners. That's why we call them the Zebedee Fishing Company. The James and John, they're known as the sons of thunder. But they are quiet in comparison to Peter. Remember, James is beheaded in Acts chapter 12. What's amazing about that, when we talk about, if you go to, to Acts, and you read Acts chapters 1 through 12, it's really all about um, Peter and, uh, and John on mission. But there's not a word from John in there. All of it's Peter speaking. So <laughs> take that as you will. But like I said, they all came from the same town on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, we're in the northern part, in the northern kingdom. If you think about the center of power for the Israelites, for the Jews, that was Jerusalem. None of these men came from there. None of them were educated there. None of them came from the place where you would say, ah, yes, that's where we get a qualified leader to start a church. Simon Peter was also married. And uh, tradition says that he has to be crucified upside down. Remember that he and his wife both were, were killed in Rome. And then he has to be crucified upside down because only Jesus was worthy be crucified the right way up. And you have Andrew, Peter's brother, was, he was also the fisherman. Tradition says that he was to be crucified, but he has to be different from Jesus, so he was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Then you have James and John. Remember, James was beheaded in Acts chapter 12. John lived the longest of all of them. He was exiled to the island of Patmos, and that's where we get his letters and uh, the book of Revelation. Philip, tradition says that Philip preached in... in uh, uh, in, I'm going to try and say this name, uh, Phrygia, and he died a martyr in Heropolis. But he came from the same town. He came from Bethsaida, the town in which Peter and Andrew and, and John, they all came from. And the likely it is, he was probably a fisherman also, just because that was the most likely trade. Though It doesn't say that. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we see Philip as one of the seven ordained deacons. And some say this might be a, a different Philip, um, but... I would say it's probably the apostle just because, uh, because of the name. The thing is that he went off to Samaria on his mission, and then he led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And then he's mentioned Acts 2, 21, 8, that he was one of the people who stayed with Paul in Caesarea, and he was one of the, the major figures in the missionary enterprise of the early church. Then we go on to, to Thomas, um, Thomas Didymus, Thomas, uh, uh, the doubting Thomas. He lived in Galilee. In tradition that he, after, you know, everything, he went off to, uh, to Parthia, to Persia and India, and that um, he was actually uh, martyred in, in Madras at Mount St. Thomas in India. But we get that name, you know, Didymus. Um, it was his Greek name. And it's funny, it, the names are, are always one of those things that we kind of struggle with in the, in the Bible because a lot of times men at this time, they would actually have three different names. You know, we, we do the same thing where you have a first name, a middle name, and a last name. The problem that we have is we don't know necessarily the structure for these guys. We don't lay that out. A lot of times we get the, who their father was. Like I say, like Simon Bar Jonas, we, we get that. But a lot of times these guys are referred to by a first name, that what it appears to be. Um, so same thing. We get, you know, uh, Thomas is sometimes called Judas, um, just a part of that, that culture difference. But like I say, we, we know 
the most prominent thing most of us know about Thomas is that, you know, uh, that part where he doubts, where he's like, no, I need to see, you know, his pierced hands and, and touch his side, which he, he does get. But remember that he is there um, at the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. He's in the upper room in John chapter 14. And he's the one who asked, you know, he wanted to know where Jesus was going. And in John chapter 20, verse 25, he's the one who again asks if he can see the nail prints in Jesus' hand and the gash in his side. Bartholomew, it says about Bartholomew, this is a beautiful thing to have said about you, that he was a true believer who openly confessed his faith in Christ. And it's funny that he is the one who's matched up with doubting Thomas. That you have on one side, you have Bartholomew, who's a willing, open confessor, and then you have Thomas, who's like, eh, I'm kind of a skeptic. I need to see some proof. But Bartholomew's name appears with every list of the disciples. That's Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1. It's probably his second name, because he's also called Nathaniel. But... This is a beautiful compliment, again, that you have said about him. John chapter 1, verse 47 says, An Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. What a beautiful thing to have say about you. Tradition says that he went to Armenia and then he was died. He was, he, he was flayed by knives. And we have, get to, to Matthew, or Levi, again, son of Alphaeus. He was from Capernaum. He was a publican, a tax collector. We know that about him. And he wrote the gospel that bears his name. He died a martyr in Ethiopia. If you go to, to Mark chapter 2 or Matthew 9 or Luke 5, it's where he recounts his calling. I love the part that in Matthew chapter 9, he, he listed in a group of miracles. He really considered it miraculous that he was called and, and, and saved by Jesus. And we all know this, but it's important to remember that being a tax collector as a Jew, a Jewish tax collector, was considered especially heinous because he, he was a traitor to his own people. If you were to remember that the Jews believed that the only tithes belonged to God, not to government. The way their whole government structure was set up from the Old Testament law, it all poured out of the temple. It all poured out of their Levitical system, and then it, the rest was handled by families. So when you talked about how, how do you take care of the poor, well, every farmer would only glean their fields once. The rest would be left for the poor. If you had a family member who had fallen destitute, their families were responsible for taking care of them. That's why when you read uh, the story of the book of Ruth, that's why they were looking for a family member to be able to redeem their land, to be able to redeem their, their family. Remember, they take the shoe off to say, we've, we've made this deal. Because it was a family's duty to restore that land, to restore the people, and to take care of them. So this idea that we would pay taxes to a government that's way off in Rome to do the same things that we do as a family and as a, as a religion was very offensive. And then to have one of their own decide to participate in that, and not only participate in it, but to profit off of it, and usually to do so corruptly. Because the Romans didn't really care how much money the tax collectors took in as long as they got their share. And so most of them had a practice of overcharging for their taxes. That's one of the things we talked about, Zacchaeus paying back for what he has stolen. That's why it's so remarkable that his heart is changed in such a way. But he's called a publican, or in Latin it's, Publicanus, meaning engaged in public service, a man who handled public money, a tax gatherer. Then we get to James, who is sometimes called James the Lesser or James the Younger. And James and Jude are brothers, and their parents are, are Alphaeus or Cleophas and Mary. But Jude is the author of Jude. And then um, he was the brother of James. He was one of the very little known apostles, but he lived in Galilee. And tradition says he, he preached in Assyria and Persia, and that he died in Persia. 
Then we get to Simon the Zealot. We all know the name because we love that. But what's fascinating about that is that what that means is that he was radically against the Roman government. The zealots were known for carrying around these, these little knives and stabbing Romans, kind of enacting in, in guerrilla warfare. So to have both Matthew and Simon in this same group of 12, that's a great lesson for us, isn't it? The one thing that united them was their faith. The one thing that united them was Jesus. They put aside their past. They put aside their disagreements. They put aside all of that political divide and said, no, 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 we're on the same team. That's an amazing lesson for us to even the people that we disagree with, whether it's politically or professionally or even philosophically, we can still be on the same team. We can still be united in a common cause. And we should look to do that. But we can't forget that those violent nationalists, they had a dream, and that dream was the restoration of Israel. That's one of the, the biggest things that, that tears apart the church early on, and it tears apart the, the Jewish people. What they wanted from Jesus is they wanted him to come in power and strength and to cast off the Romans and to restore the nation. They were not looking for someone to go to them individually and say, how about we cast off your sin? How about we free you from bondage? How about we free you from oppression? First, as an individual. And they're going, no, 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 let's free the nation. Let's get all these Romans out of here. And he's, mm, how about we clean up your life first? It's a tough message to take. And it's one of the reasons why the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they really get upset with Jesus because their power base is threatened because they had kind of a natural animus with the Romans. You know, they kept the church sort of in power. It's one of the in incredible things of that relationship between the Roman government and the church is that they're like, all right, as long as you keep peace, you're going to get to keep your, your power a little bit. Notice they were still able to do sacrifices. They were still able to do a lot of things at the temple. That speaks to kind of a, an interesting relationship, doesn't it? Especially when the Roman Empire was so hard on religions everywhere else. For some reason, they kept the peace and they kept the religion intact in Jerusalem and throughout Israel. But again, we summarize. We have fishermen, we have zealous, we have nationalists, we have brothers. I don't know that I would want to work with my sister, go on a, on a two-year mission with her. It's incredible how many pairs of brothers there are. How many of you guys want to work with your sibling, just live with them, work with them, solid for two or three years straight? Anybody signing up for that? These guys did, and they did it successfully and well. Pretty amazing. So I was counting, and I did not see a single doctorate in theology. Did you guys see one in our list? I didn't. How about an MBA? Did anybody see an MBA? Huh. Any dot-com billionaires? Any influencers? Any Instagram celebrities? I'm not even seeing a single Armani suit. So after you've read their qualifications, we've read about them, what do you think? Would you have hired them if that stack of resumes came in and said, hey, we're going to go do a church plan, and our church plan is not only going to start here in Israel, we're going to take it out to the entire world. We are going to change the world. Is this who you want on your team? Fishermen? 
maybe a tax collector, maybe a guy who's going to betray you? Do you believe me yet when I say that God uses common people for his extraordinary purposes? And I'm sticking to my guns, by the way, that God has very high standards. But you can see how a brotherhood of faith, it brought them together, and they were able to stand confidently and expectantly, and they were able to proclaim Jesus as he was and as he is returning. So here's the secret recipe that they used. They used a beautiful recipe. It's in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. We're just going to quote 45. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the point, is serving. And by serving, we forward the kingdom. So let's look at these high standards that I keep talking about. So we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. These are high standards. These are big bars that Jesus is asking for us, all of us, to clear. It says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. He's quoting from Leviticus 11.44 there. Let's just look at what my job requirements are. Standing up here, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. It says, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of, of respect. And if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace into the devil's trap. Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must be hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Hebrews 13, chapter 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of the way of their life, and this is the hard part, imitate their faith. Your life must not only be good, you must not only be good at your life, it must be so good, it must be exemplary, that other people can look at your life and imitate it. These are high stinking standards. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'll, uh, I'll pick up my last check on the way out. <laughs> but it sets up a conflict, doesn't it? Those standards versus the material that God has to work with. 
So we look at these guys, we look at where they came from, and we sit here in this building today benefiting from their work. Without them, we are not here today. Those 12 common men, they partnered with God, they served God to lay the foundation of the church as we know it. They partnered with the Holy Spirit to write the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, as well as the letters, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, James, Jude, Revelation. And again, this is a message of encouragement and of hope. See, when we look at, at the source material, at these guys, where they came from, what Jesus started with, to the finished work of Scripture and the church, we should stand amazed and encouraged Look at the glory of God and how it is able to do these incredible things to change the world in mission and ministry and purpose. That is such good news. And I know it's cliche. I know it is. But God does not wait for you to be qualified. He doesn't wait for you to be perfect. He doesn't wait for you to get an education, to know the right things, to take the class, he starts using you and trains you as you go. That's exactly what he did with the 12. And as we pass and fail checkpoints, we're given greater mission and responsibility. He qualifies us after we're called. And that's exactly the process that we see with the apostles. Jesus takes the raw materials, and they get to work on ministry. And he pours teaching into them. And they see his healing works. They see his provision. They see him feeding people. They are questioned and tested. They try, they fall, they fail. They're sent out on mission. They come back. And remember, it's, it's fast. It's maybe one and a half, maybe two years from when Peter, James, and John, and Andrew leave their boats to follow Christ until the crucifixion. Then three days to the resurrection, and 40 days later, Christ ascends. So these Galileans, these uneducated rural cousins, were utterly unqualified. There wasn't a Levite, a Sadducee, a Pharisee, or a scribe among them. So when the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2.20 calls them the foundation of the church, when in Ephesians 3.5 they're called conduits of divine revelation, in Acts 2.42 when they're called teachers of true doctrine and true gospel, in Ephesians 4.11 they were given by Christ and built the church. 2 Corinthians 12 verses 11 through 12, they were conduits for signs, wonders, healing, and driving out demons. How did they get there? It's right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So our last little bit, we're just going to zoom in on Peter. We're just going to look at the raw materials of Peter, the leader of the apostles. And remember that the whole point of Scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation is Christ. It's the whole point. But we can zoom in and we can pull some things as we go. 
Again, I was talking about how you can learn some things. Nehemiah is a great book to learn about project management from conception to completion. The story of Peter is a great picture of the rough qualities being transformed into the mature leader of the apostles and the founder of the church. When you read through, I want to kind of put this little earworm in. When you read the the New Testament or when you're reading through the letters, listen for something. And it kind of depends on, on your translation. But there's a fun thing that the Holy Spirit does here. See, they use Simon and Peter, both names, throughout the book. And there's some key times when that's used. So you'll hear that Simon is most often used in, like a, in, in a narrative sense. Like they went to the house of Simon's mother-in-law or Simon's boat or Simon's brother. It's nothing to do with the church or with spirituality, just strictly telling us what was going on and where they were going. But the other way Simon is used is when Jesus wants to contrast his sinful side versus his, call, his calling, his heavenly calling. So when Peter is acting in a way that's contrary to the path Jesus wants him on, he calls him Simon. Peter is used when he is on the right track, when he is demonstrating the righteous qualities deserving of the name Rock. He was the original. I don't even think he lifted weights. So here's a good example of this. If you flip over to Luke chapter 5, it's right here. It says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, again, just narrative sense right there, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Listen to this part. Simon answered. He answered from his worldly perspective. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. There come um, James and John. And they came and filled the boat so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, see the notice in the change? He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. Here's another example in Mark chapter 14, verse 37. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he says, Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Compare that to Mark chapter 16, verses 6 through 7. This is the angel speaking. He says, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The angel calls him Peter by name. And notice, he could have just left it. He could have just said just the disciples, the apostles, the, you know, the 11. No. He makes sure he calls Peter by name. Now, on a personal level, with Jesus as, as a teacher and a mentor, I have to think it was pretty hard when Jesus walks up to you and says, so I'm changing you. I'm giving you another name. Your name is going to be Cephas, Petros, the rock. And you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. It was probably scary. It was probably exciting. 
probably burdensome. I love that in our video when it talks about those moments of dad strength, when Jesus would, they'd be walking along, they'd be doing things, and then suddenly Jesus would just drop the hammer. They would give him just a glimpse of his true nature and power. So they would lose sight of the, of the fully man part, and they would encounter the fully God part. But regardless, it's a, it's a big set of expectations. It was also quite a promotion, right? A position to be the leader of the apostles, not just the leader of the apostles, but to be the founder of the church. So it must have stung pretty greatly when Jesus called him Simon instead of Rock. As a kind of another little fun thing in your Bible, if you turn to the Gospel of John, John's pretty fun. You know, they grew up together. They grew up in the same town. They worked together, lived together their entire lives. John's funny because John calls him Simon Peter every single time. He calls him both. He says, yeah, I knew both sides. I knew the Simon side, and I knew the Peter side. He's Simon Peter. So have you spotted it yet? Have you spotted the qualification that all of them had in common, the thing on their resume, the thing that made them capable of being transformed from the raw materials they were into the disciples, into the apostles? You notice it was on the line? They were not closed-minded. They were not closed-hearted. And they were not self-righteous. Compare that to the religious people of the time. These 12 very common, very ordinary men, in comparison to the religious leaders of the time, they did not have a self-righteous attitude. They, the religious leaders had no need for God or for a Messiah. They believed they were righteous without him, that their sacrifice, that their system, that the scriptures, that everything that they had was all that they needed. These men, hopefully like us, they were walking by the River Jordan. They heard John the Baptist declaring Christ as Messiah, declaring sinful separation, asking for baptism, repentance, and faith. And they answered. Of the multitude, they answered. They confessed their sins. They gave themselves wholly to Jesus. And quite frankly, none more so than Peter. This is a quote from John MacArthur. I love this. It says, The Gospels literally are filled with his name. His name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any name but Jesus. Nobody speaks as often as Peter, and nobody is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. No disciple is so reproved by the Lord as Peter and no disciple reproved the Lord but Peter. No disciple ever so boldly confessed and outspokenly acknowledged the lordship of Christ as Peter, and no one denied it as boldly as Peter. No one is so praised and blessed as Peter, and no one else is called Satan but Peter. The Lord had harder things to say to Peter than he ever said to anybody else, and that was part of making him the man he wanted him to be, the leader Christ desired. God took a common man with an ambivalent, vacillating, impulsive, unsubmissive personality and shaped him into the leader of the Twelve, the greatest preacher out of the apostles, and in every sense, the real power of the first twelve chapters of Acts, the birth of the church. See, Peter was bold. He was vocal. He was willing to speak out. And it didn't always work out. But that raw material those things that he had inside, they were the things that made him the great leader that he became. That he had the right stuff, the clay that, that Jesus could mold into the rock 
on which he built his church. And I think this is true, that it's a lot easier to rein in someone who wants to constantly go than it is to motivate somebody who wants to constantly sit. If you were to go to, uh, to Luke chapter 5, again, we were, just, we were just in there, but it's Simon, it's Peter who answers Jesus when Jesus like, says, hey, put out into the deep water. Notice how quick he is to speak. Same thing in, in Luke chapter 9. It's the part where, where Peter confesses that, that Jesus is Messiah. But it's a conversation there. Peter is very vocal. Luke chapter 22, verse 47 through 50. That's the, the part where Peter cuts off the guy's ear. Peter is never afraid to step out, never afraid to go. He was vocal, outspoken. He was also curious. He was constantly asking questions. It's one of the great things about Peter. There's so many questions that we have, that I have, that he asks. It's like, I'm kind of glad Peter spoke up there because I was going to raise my hand, but I was a little scared. <laughs> so, But he was curious. One of the things about a leader is that they are constantly questioning, and he is constantly in dialogue with Jesus. And he has to be corrected sometimes, but again, his nature is to raise his hand, to make the comment, to speak out. And quite frankly, it's because of his nature we get a deeper understanding and correction on a lot of issues. Think about if you go to, to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. It's the part where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Jesus, Peter asks the question that, that I want to ask. He says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. I agree. Jesus should never be my servant. He should never do that for me. I should be doing that for him. And Jesus answered, no, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then I'm with Peter again. He says, then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I'm with him, right? If we, we're going to do this, let's do this. And he says, no, no, no. You've had a bath already. I only need to wash your feet. The whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who's going to betray him. The last attribute is that Peter was always in the mix. He was constantly involved. He didn't stand off to the side to wait to see what happened. He was always the run at the front of the line. He was with John, racing to the empty tomb. Crazy that not one of them had taken a tactical class. Not one of them was like, um, there's Roman guards and Jews in between here and there. We might want to be careful. Nah, no, we're going. Think about Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's there with James and John, but he's the one who's like, uh, can we build something? Let's build something. We're here. You're here. Let's build something. Maybe a gift shop. What do you think? I'm going to conclude with Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. It's part where, where Jesus walks on the water. So immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out on his hand and caught him. He says, you a little faith. Why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed again in Sarret. When the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. See, when we read that, how do you take it? Because sometimes we, we take it as a fool's errand for Peter to have stepped out onto the waves. Or we take it that his sinking symbolized that he had little faith. But quite frankly, I, I think that when he got back to the, to the boat, when he was sitting there sopping wet, I think he was probably grinning from ear to ear. I think he was saying, did you see? Did you see how far I made it? <laughs> I was like halfway there. <laughs> that was amazing. Like, here's the thing. How many of us would have stepped out if it weren't for him? If it weren't for a leader? If it weren't for somebody to go first? He was so bold, and he was so willing. And we need him. Because he's the one who showed us that it's even possible for it to be done. The rest of us would have just sat in the boat and go, wow, Jesus is amazing. Peter said, yeah, let's go. I want to be there too. Thank the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for the apostles. Thank you for taking us as we are. Father, we submit ourselves. Father, we we know that we are not worthy of your calling. We know that we don't meet your high standards. We know our sin and our our failings. It's, It's ever before us. But Father, we hope that you will take us, that you will mold us, that you will make us, that you will refine us, that you will discipline us, that you will press us into service. Because, Father, we we see the world as it is. We know there are people that are hurting. We know there are people that are suffering. And we know that when you come in your power and your glory, that there is healing, that there is redemption, that there are lives that are changed, that there is hope. And, Father, it is so desperately needed in our world right now. So we're asking for that. We're asking to be a conduit for you our little valley, that our little town, that maybe the whole world would know you. And if we can partner with you in some way, Father, please send us. Father, we ask for your provision. We ask for your, we ask for your wisdom and for your guidance. Father, we are so thankful that Ed's surgery went well. Father, I still lift up our children to you. I so worried about them. This whole time has been especially hard on them. And they are so amazing. They are so strong. They just do it. But I fear that they are suffering. So, Father, please help us to see them, to hear them, to love on them extra, to make sure that all of them are seen and heard and provided for. Father, we ask that you be the loudest voice that they hear, that you be the light to their feet. 
Father, we lift up our church to you. We are seeking your face. We are seeking your guidance. We are seeking to be on your mission. I lift up little Jalen to you, Father. I know he is still in hospital, but I just, I hope that uh, he can come home with his family. I pray for your healing hands to be all over him. And I ask all of that in the loving name of your son, Jesus Christ.